This is Seth Harwood with As Much Protein as an Egg, episode 12. We got some chapters for you today. I am at the borderline of my faith. I'm at the hinterlands of my devotion, but I'm still alive. So more let go. It's your boy, Seth Harwood, bringing you as much protein as an egg. Back in effect, SethHarwood.com, RightWithSeth.com, and of course, Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. I'd love to hear from you. Well, I guess that message is pretty clear. Did you need more? It's 2020, the year of the COVID craziness. On the Jewish calendar, we just hit a new year. Happy Rosh Hashanah, everybody. Lashana Tova, David Dezwirik. It's 5781, and maybe that means good things are coming for us. But in America, it's still all kinds of jacked up. Are you still listening to the podcast? Have you told your friends about it? Have you left a five-star review on iTunes, Patreon, or Amazon.com.eu.edu.omg? Ah, welcome. And here we are. I have no talking points. Let's get into Carlos with some great material with your chapters this week. Actually, I do have a talking point. Ground Fiction is here. Check it out. I'll put a link to the Amazon page where you can buy the ebook or the print copy. If you're broke and you want a free ebook, drop me a line. I will happily provide you. Ground Fiction is a collection, an anthology of some great writers who I've been working with. They've got short stories and novel excerpts in there. I think you'll really enjoy what they're bringing to the table. I'm the editor on the project and a coach or teacher for many of these writers. So I'm very excited about this project. They've done some great work. We'll have some podcasts of that coming up. And this is more of the Vonnegut project, as much protein as an egg. Are you enjoying the long version of this? It's got a lot of content. Let me know what you think. Chapter 22 Artemis Kellogg had taken the works of Beatrice Kiedzler with him to a bar. He was drinking a black and tan under a large television set that was showing hockey. He sure didn't care much about hockey. In front of him was a silver bowl full of pretzels. He was snacking. Beatrice Kiedzler had a massive collection of works. She had written and ghostwritten 47 novels. Kellogg and the committee didn't know about the ghostwriting, so they only had her 24 gothic novels to consider for the Grand Master Award. 24 books was still a lot, thought Kellogg. Luckily, he had all of Kiesler's books loaded onto his Kindle Fire. The committee had complete access to any of the works of the finalists on Amazon.com's Kindle platform. 
This was another nice perk to being on the committee, which was partly sponsored by Amazon. Kellogg had loaded up his fire with all 26 books by Kurt Vonnegut. 26 was more than 24. Another point for Vonnegut, Kellogg thought. That Kiedzler was a famous Gothic novelist was all that Kellogg knew about her, but what a Gothic novelist was, he had no idea. Here's a fact. Way back when Beatrice Kiesler's family owned the old Kiesler mansion in Midland City, which is where she had been born, this creepy, old, rather gigantic building had given her a sense of the Gothic. This meant she liked to think about inhabiting creepy, big old houses. She liked to write about them, too. The Kiesler mansion had several wings to it, also four kitchens and twelve bathrooms. No one who lived there had even used all of the toilets in the place. Kiedzler's family got the money for this wonderful mansion from the now-defunct Kiedzler Automobile Company, which last functioned as a factory manufacturing airplanes and trucks. That was before the Great Depression. When the company went bust, the RoboMagic Corporation took over the factory and started making the world's first washing machines. Back when Beatrice Kiedzler lived in the mansion as a young girl, it was beginning to become run down. Bills weren't getting paid. Maintenance was going by the wayside. Servants were getting let go. It was actually this state of disrepair that caused Beatrice to one day grow up and write gothic novels. The disrepair of her mansion became a major influence on her. As Kellogg would soon find out, these books actually had very little to do with Marilyn Manson or teen girls painting their faces, but they did give us Dracula and Frankenstein, so that led to a lot of stuff, including Robert Pattinson and the Vampire Diaries. Beatrice Kiesler's novels usually contained the following elements, which made them gothic. Horror, mystery, romance, and old buildings. Some of her books were even set back in the 19th century. Can you imagine that? Really strange stuff. Artemis Kellogg thought Kiesler's work wasn't up his alley. It wasn't his, quote, cup of tea, he thought. Score another point for Vonnegut. He started looking over the works of Beatrice Kiesler on his Kindle Fire. He liked her covers quite a bit, especially the way they looked on his device. He could scroll through them, in color. Many of the covers depicted a big-bosomed harlot in a tight bodice or a corset. These were old-time sexy. Kind of like granny panties. But better. The women had big, ruffled dresses or skirts that totally obscured the shapes of their bodies, though, which was definitely a minus. In most of the covers, a dark castle or an old, foreboding house loomed in the distance. Some of the covers had an attractive man leaning toward the woman, as if to protect her. Kellogg half expected to see some kind of monster lurking in the shadow somewhere, but upon thorough inspection, he did not find any monsters anywhere on the book covers. He guessed he'd have to read the books to find these. Because he was a very fast reader and wanted to be a champion committee member, Kellogg read one of Kiedzler's books. After a time, the bartender came over and talked to Kellogg about hockey. Kellogg half listened and half read at the same time. Hockey and the gothic novel on his Kindle fire held about equal parts of his attention. Another point for Vonnegut. Listen, soon the committee for the Grand Master Award was going to meet in San Francisco. Kellogg was starting to feel prepared. He had been reading up. 
he could talk about Nagy and Kiedzler and their works, and of course, he could talk about Vonnegut. Then he got a strange email. It came in on his smartphone while he was listening to talk about hockey and reading Beatrice Kiedzler at the bar. The email made his phone make a ding that he immediately wanted to respond to. He looked at his phone and saw an email from Bainbridge McGee. Kellogg had never gotten an email from McGee, and so this new communication from a writer he greatly admired perked him right up. He sat up straighter and waved off the bartender. The bartender didn't care about hockey either. He was just talking. When he saw Kellogg wave him away, he assumed Kellogg wanted him to pour another black and tan, so that's what he went to do. This had been all he wanted from Kellogg anyway, the signal to pour another beer. Kellogg looked around the bar before opening the email from McGee. Its subject line was, quote, committee plan. No one in the bar was paying anyone else much attention, certainly not enough to realize that one lone patron was about to open up an email from a famous living author. Kellogg thought for a moment about going home to show Emily Plinko his smartphone. He wanted her to be with him to document the moment, especially after a pep talk and the epiphany it had led him to. But he couldn't wait. He opened the email. What the email said was this. Bainbridge McGee had been working on a new masterpiece, one that was influenced by Kurt Vonnegut. He believed the masterpiece could even be considered to inhabit, quote, the world of Kurt Vonnegut, whatever that meant. He wanted to let people on the committee know that they would be given this new masterpiece prior to the voting for the Grand Master Award. McGee said he thought this masterpiece would dramatically affect their voting. This was why he was writing the novel. Huh, Artemis Kellogg said. On one hand, he was excited and even pumped up about the prospect of being on a select list to get an early view of the new masterpiece by Bainbridge McGee. At the same time, he felt like masterpiece was a word that had become overused, especially by writers like McGee and Kilgore Trout. But let them do it. He supposed they were entitled. What wrung concern into Kellogg was this, that perhaps McGee was actually making his own pitch for the Grandmaster Award. Then he read the end of the email. This was where McGee said, quote, In case anyone is still undecided or opposed, I firmly believe that this novel I am writing will firm up to locked and upright position the need to give this year's Damon Knight Memorial Grandmaster Award to Kurt Vonnegut. End quote. McGee signed the email, May the force be with you. Kellogg said involuntarily, And also with you. There it was. Kellogg's fears were allayed and his utter excitement about the chance to read a new novel by Bainbridge McGee overtook him. He leapt off his stool and onto his feet. Hockey be damned. His kindle fire clattered to the bar. And also with you, Kellogg said to the bartender, who had just put a second black and tan down in front of him. The bartender said, whatever. He usually liked to say, as much protein as an egg or breakfast of champions when he served someone a Guinness. But since the black and tan was only half Guinness, he didn't have any catchphrase for the drink. Half as much protein as an egg was what he wanted to say until he was caught off guard by this force comment of Kellogg's. Who did this kid think he was? The bartender wondered Yoda. Kellogg grabbed up the black and tan and drank off about a third of it. 
He liked how it felt to chug a blackened tan. This was a new discovery he had just made. He chugged down the rest of it and burped loudly and painfully. The burp had actually stretched his neck muscles to an engorged state on its way out. That was a big burp. Luckily, someone had dropped a bowl of pretzels on the other side of the bar, and this noise eclipsed the sound of Kellogg's burp. The bartender happened to fart at the same time also, and this sound was even more luckily eclipsed. No one wanted to drink at a bar with a farty bartender, least of all Kellogg, who did everything he could to avoid thinking about school when he wasn't there. Those Waldorf kids and their farting. Kellogg spun around twice and grabbed up his Kindle Fire. He left a tent on the bar and ran out to get home. He wanted to tell Emily Plinko his good news. So this is a new novel? Emily Plinko asked, once she'd read the email from Bainbridge McGee. She and Kellogg were sitting in their living room. Soft jazz music was playing. John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. But don't worry, these two aren't about to have more sex. Even I'm starting to wonder if my characters are having too much sex in this novel. Wait, I just remembered. People are always trying to have more sex. And so on. Back to our story. Emily Plinko was impressed by the email. She truly believed in Artemis Kellogg and his writing. For two weeks, she had been telling all her friends that she was living with an artistic genius. She said no one might know him now, but they would. She was sure of it, she said. Now, here he was getting an email directly from one of his favorite authors. Screw the Waldorf school and its farty sixth graders. No more farting school for you, my dear, she said. You think? Kellogg was taken aback. He knew he had at least four more months of sixth grade until summer. He planned to just drink every night and write as much as he could until then. Then, in the summer, he could take his finished screenplay to Los Angeles and Emily Plinko and get it sold. This was a bit of a harebrained scheme, but it would actually work. If he ever got the screenplay finished, I would make sure of that. A reputable producer slash director in Hollywood would buy it for an impressive sum of money. Emily Plinko leaned over and kissed Kellogg on the cheek. Yes, she said. Yes, this is the chance you've been waiting for. You've got to contact Bainbridge and let him know you're here. Kellogg said, I am here. You're here for him. Yes. You're ready to read his masterpiece and testament to Vonnegut. Yes, Kellogg echoed. Yes, what's the name of his masterpiece? Kellogg looked at the email. The Falling People, he said. I love it. He loved it, too. He said so. Then he furrowed his brow. The black and tans were starting to have an effect. He felt like he could talk or write for hours. Just one question. Emily took his hands. She kissed him again. What? What the heck does he mean by inhabit the world of Kurt Vonnegut? She shook her head and smirked diagonally, scrunching up her cheeks. I have no idea what that means. Who the heck ever heard of anything like that? Kellogg said, He's a genius. I can't wait to see it. Emily shot up off the couch and did a little wiggly hips dance. Exactly! D 
Do you think he's overusing the word masterpiece? Kellogg asked. Still alive. Chapter 23 Down on La Quinta, it had been three days since McGee and Sandy had made love in the hot tub. Yes, quote, made love is the same as, quote, had sex. Really, ask any guy. Don't ask a woman. This is just a joke. Really. It was exactly 17 minutes after he had sent his email to the committee regarding his, quote, committee plan and the use of his masterpiece to sway the voters. He was letting the cat out of the bag by sending the email, but even fast-reading committee members needed a heads-up about reading a whole novel in one sitting. It would require them to extend the time of their meeting a minimum of 20 minutes, and this would have to be cleared with the hotel. Right now, they had reserved the Golden Gate Room at the Sir Francis Drake for three hours on the morning of the first Friday in March. McGee figured they'd need it now for at least three and a half hours. Since Aldo Calcaño, the great committee leader and champion of Laszlo Zoltan Nagy, was in charge of the reservations, this heads-up was required. Now it was 8.47 p.m. in La Quinta, and McGee had two choices. He could go out to The Nest and meet Sandy, or he could write. It was Thursday night, the best night of the week at the nest by far, undoubtedly. McGee closed down his internet browser, which happened to be called Microsoft Explorer, and operated rather clunkily, and he opened up his word processing program to the falling people. This was a big deal. He had just realized it was the night of February 13th, the same night the first bombs were dropped on Dresden, Germany by the Allied forces in 1945. This was the 69th anniversary of the firebombing of Dresden, the formerly most critical event of Billy Pilgrim's life, more or less. 69 was Bainbridge McGee's favorite number. Of course it was. The Dresden firebombing was the whole reason for Kurt Vonnegut writing Slaughterhouse-Five and creating Billy Pilgrim in the first place. That business with traveling across space and time to live in a zoo on Tralfalmador was kind of a big thing, too. Come to think of it, Billy Pilgrim had had quite a severe and amazing life. If you factor in its plane crash in Vermont, the Dresden firebombing, World War II in general, getting famous for his Tralfalmador revelations, and all that. But now McGee was giving Billy even more amazing experiences. Billy was going through the events of September 11, 2001. These were a really big deal. And that was true for people who'd only seen it on television. Now Billy Pilgrim was right down at Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan. He was at the World Trade Center. He was approaching the South Tower. McGee dove right back in. He wrote. Billy Pilgrim was less than 100 yards from the South Tower when McGee read through to where he'd left off writing The Falling People. Billy had excellent vision through his spectacles. He was witnessing this giant spectacle through his spectacles. And so on. He walked closer. It was 9.44 a.m. in Billy's world. The South Tower would collapse in exactly 15 minutes. Then Billy would be covered in smoke, dust and debris. He'd be filthy. He would actually get bits of glass embedded in his face. But luckily then, he'd blink back into 1972 ten minutes later, and the glass bits would all be gone. Still, his face would hurt pretty bad for those ten minutes. He would bleed. 
The collapse of the South Tower was now 14 minutes away. Don't worry about Billy. In 24 minutes, he will travel in time to a zoo on Tralthalmador, where he will have sex with Montana Wildhack, the beautiful movie starlet, and so on. Billy walked closer. He came to a camera crew and a reporter. The reporter was furiously using the word, quote, terrorist, in everything he said. His suit jacket looked ruffled from running toward and then away from the tower. We are seeing actual workers from the upper floors of the towers jumping out the windows now, the reporter said. The camera panned up, tracking along the height of the south tower. Bodies. We can't be sure if they're alive or not, or whether they're falling out, or if they've jumped. The reporter shook his head. A solemn gesture. He dabbed at his eye with a finger, which gave the effect of him wiping away a tear. He was actually pushing away a small piece of burnt travel receipt from an executive's trip to Albuquerque that had flown into his eye. A third member of the camera crew, this one with a heavy headset on, reached out and pushed down the front of the camera. He gave the reporter the kill sign by waving his hand across his neck. A red light on the front of the camera went off. No more about the bodies, the third member of the crew said. His name was Hank Huckabee, and he was from Matuchin, New Jersey. Matuchin was an old Indian name for a dead horse. Quote, Indian was the name for the original brown people to live in the United States. This was a very silly thing to call them. They had no connection to India at all. Blame Christopher Columbus, who no longer has a holiday named after him, at least not in San Francisco, where that day is now called Indigenous People's Day. Quote, indigenous is another word for Indian or brown. The original brown people San Franciscans call, quote, indigenous, don't give a flying fuck what that holiday is called. Most of them now own shares of casinos and are filthy rich. And so on. The reporter said, Roger that. He made a pistol motion with his hand, acted like he was shooting Hank Huckabee. He had no freaking idea what was going on behind him or that he was about to be engulfed in debris in 13 minutes. Hank Huckabee said, Back in five, and started counting down from five with his fingers. When he got to one, he pointed at the reporter and a red light on the front of the camera lit up. As you can see, we are here at ground zero of this terrorist attack. Two passenger airlines have been hijacked and incredibly flown into the World Trade Center towers in some kind of kamikaze mission against our great country. Billy Pilgrim walked forward. Hank Huckabee said to nobody in particular, Can somebody get that doofus in the old man clothes out of our shot? Billy was looking up now, watching the South Tower for any movement of falling objects. And this is what he saw. He saw a man in a black suit falling, followed by a woman in a blue dress. They were spinning through the air, their limbs flailing. Luckily for Billy, he couldn't see where they would land. That part of the ground was blocked off from his view by a building known only as World Trade Center 4. It was a ten-story black dwarf compared to the bright silvery height of the South Tower. On its lowest levels, WTC 4 housed parts of a mall and then offices from there on up. Bainbridge McGee had once worked in the building. He'd had a summer job at the New York Mercantile Exchange, which was also in this building, on the 7th and 8th floors. This was where commodities traders stood around all day and waved their hands, 
making markets for barrels of oil that came from countries on the other side of the world inhabited by brown people. Most of the money that had financed the suicide missions of these terrorists and hijackers had come from these countries and their oil. Gold futures were also traded on this exchange. None of the hijackers, terrorists, or terrorism planners had any interest in hurting the mercantile exchange. They were going after the representation of power and security that the World Trade Center towers held for America. Part of the reason they represented such power was because of their great height. McGee stopped writing for a minute. He worried that his narrative had devolved into a factual reporting of boring details, even details from his life. This, just when Billy Pilgrim was starting to see exactly what McGee wanted to describe, the power and the image of the falling bodies. He still didn't know why he so badly needed to show this. He was maybe just a rubbernecker, someone watching a crash on the highway. He had just created Hank Huckabee, a character who knew enough to listen to the voice in his ear telling him to turn the camera away from the falling bodies. But McGee didn't want to turn his camera away. He wanted to show this horror. It would not make him a gothic novelist. Listen, McGee had ultimately felt bad enough about shortchanging Don DeLillo, his literary broheme in arms, that he purchased Falling Man for his Kindle Paperwhite and read it. Here's what he found in the name of DeLillo's non-performing artist rendering of any Falling Man or people, a scant maybe or maybe not reference to a thing or a person falling, seen by a character inside one of the burning towers. The character would make it out alive. This apparition, in the very last pages of the book, maybe there, maybe not. And in the very last line of the book, a falling shirt making its way to the ground, symbolically, metaphorically, full of nothing more than dusty, smoke-filled air. McGee had already created his falling shirt, he did this on his own, before reading more Don DeLillo, mind you. He had his falling shirt, and now Billy had seen two falling people, not counting Tony Vitelli, and heard a reporter talking about more. McGee was doing it, he felt, getting it down, and not copping out. He started to write again. He wrote Billy right up to the South Tower, where he dodged a body or two coming down from high above. These falling people, these fallers didn't have questions like Tony Vitelli as they fell. Some of them saw their lives flash before their eyes, and some of them didn't. Some were already dead or unconscious. Some had just seen unspeakable horrors in their workplaces on the upper floors of the World Trade Center towers. McGee used his words to paint each one of them as best he could, showing Billy every detail of these people's lives, loves, and secrets. He fit in fantastic stories of who they were and what they represented in the world. They were human, he was showing. He made them human. Where Billy Pilgrim had only witnessed the aftermath of the Dresden firebombing, the horrible remains that were left and looked like the moon, even the charred bodies of people, here he saw the people in the middle of these events. The worst of it. He saw them in real time right in front of his extraordinarily capable eyes, falling. McGee felt like Rabo Karabikian showing the world of characters on a hillside at the end of World War II. He wrote in as many details as he could. Every person falling out of that building had a story. He tried to tell them all. This one was an accountant and a father of three from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. 
She was a single mother who lived in a second-story apartment on Staten Island. Her son was named Archimedes. He loved to draw with his crayons. That one dreamed of being a ballet dancer but gave up on the dream in his twenties, then went on to law school and got a good job. He was married with no kids. The one in the red shirt worked as a sous chef at Windows on the World. He loved to play poker. He had come to work drunk that Tuesday and ridden up to the top of the South Tower in an elevator instead of going up to the North Tower, which was where Windows on the World was. He was completely in the wrong building that morning. And McGee wrote on. He made up stories of people who Billy saw falling through the sky. Showed him these stories. Let him witness their backward-flashing lives happening in front of their eyes in their final moments. He gave them life. He made them real for Billy and his readers. He slowed down Billy Pilgrim's view of time over those thirteen remaining minutes until the fall of the South Tower. He gave Billy the powers of infinitesimally slow time and fantastically gifted vision. Billy saw all of the fallers and knew them. McGee recorded everything about how their lives would end. He explained all the puzzles of who they were and why they had jumped or fallen or coughed or gotten hit on the head or passed out from inhaling smoke. They were all of them specific, particular people. There they were, on these pages, for his readers and Billy to know them. After seven straight hours of writing, McGee had something better than he would have ever believed. The German spirits of the Dresden firebombing had come and inhabited him in the night and helped him to write it. A true masterpiece. The Falling People was almost done. Yes, McGee writes fast. It's a superpower I just gave him. He couldn't look back over everything he had gotten down, but he knew that there were truths on every page. Many true sentences, which was all a good writer could hope for. Billy Pilgrim had borne witness. There was no comparing the two events of these two very different wars, no judging the different horrors that Billy had seen, but McGee knew he had rendered the first horror of this century in some way that held value. He had done something like what the great Vonnegut had done for his own days, the horrors he had seen. McGee sat back and rubbed his eyes. He had ridden through the night without even drinking coffee. He hadn't needed a drop. Then, for the time that he sat there, early in the dim twilight of a Friday morning in La Quinta, February 14th, he allowed himself to feel that he had worked well. In the words of Salinger, his stars were out. He had been busy writing his heart out. He gave himself the moment to enjoy that. Later in the day, in the coming week, he would read back over these new pages and feel different ways about them. He would like some parts and dislike others. His feelings about the book would waver. But there, in that moment, listening to the water shooting out of the mouths of his Home Depot gargoyles and splashing into his pool, he felt exalted, radiant. His hands glowed. He knew that he had done what even Delilo and Pinchon couldn't. This was bigger now than the committee or Vonnegut getting the award. So much bigger now, McGee thought. This was about America and showing who we were, who our heroes were, how they died one fateful day. Shit, McGee said. He was filled with personal confidence, pride, and maybe a little bravado. He saved his work, spit a green gob into his garbage can, and stood up. 
I need a coffee. Or a scotch. Up on the top shelf of his cabinet, McGee had a special bottle of Johnny Walker Triple Aquamaroon label for just such an occasion. He went to get it. Artemis Kellogg had emailed him five hours ago. McGee had no idea. I'm still alive. Chapter 24 Artemis Kellogg was teaching math to his sixth graders, order of operations and all that, when he felt his smartphone buzz in his pocket. So far, he had been having a really great Friday. He had gone through English and history with his students and had no major bouts of farting to contend with. He was having a fart-free Friday. He knew immediately that the buzz in his pocket was an email from Bainbridge McGee. He just knew. Here's how. A little bird told him. That little bird was I. That was me. That was the author of this book. I planted the idea in his head. He told his students to do practice problems in their workbooks, then went to his desk and secretly checked his smartphone in his lap where they couldn't see it. McGee had emailed him this. Dear Kellogg, I am very happy to make the acquaintance of another member of the Grand Master Committee who is as committed to writing and Kurt Vonnegut as I am. Let us work together to put an end to all this Hungarian-loving preventative bullshit of Calcanos. We will ring in the year of Kurt Vonnegut as Grand Master. A new era. Kellogg was a little taken aback by these last two lines. McGee seemed just a little crazy. Maybe a bit off. Oh, well, he thought. It's just bad chemicals. He read on. I am almost done with the falling people, my latest masterpiece. I would love for you to come down here to La Quinta and read it. What do you say? Drive down and I will pay for your time. Live like a writer. I'll buy you a drink. Many drinks. We'll golf. Yours truly, B.B. McGee. P.S. I don't like to fly. I would appreciate it if you could give me a ride up to San Francisco when you return. I'll pay for all expenses, etc., etc., etc. Well, shit, Kellogg whispered into his lap. Tommy Trevenin looked up. He was sitting in the front row and had heard Kellogg swear. He loved hearing grown-ups swear. He giggled quietly to himself. Kellogg thought it odd that McGee's email was written in the form of a letter. I'm sure you do, too. McGee was feeling very British again, is why he wrote his email like that. The content had Kellogg all excited. He couldn't wait to drive down to Southern California and hobnob with the great writer. He wrote back, I'll do it. When do you want me there? Then he sent the email. He would regret this for the rest of the day, worrying that he had just given up a chance to ask McGee lots of writerly questions about topics he held fascinating and important to his progression as a writer. Among others, his biggest question was this. If he could be a famous living author someday, by, quote, author, he meant someone who writes. Books or screenplays, he wasn't ready to differentiate at this point. Maybe the novel was dead. So it would go. The fact was, though, that there could be no answer to such a question. It was the future, which McGee couldn't predict any better than Billy Pilgrim. Sure, maybe Billy would see that future someday, which McGee would as well if he lived long enough, but so far the farthest into the future Billy Pilgrim had traveled was to 2001 in The Falling People. And in The Falling People, McGee didn't give a hoot about Artemis Kellogg. Fact is, even if he did, 
In 2001, Artemis Kellogg hadn't written anything. The Trelfon Midorians knew if Kellogg would become a famous writer because they could see all of time laid out in front of them like a vast landscape in the fourth dimension, but they weren't talking. At least not to Kellogg, who thought he could create them and make them do whatever he wanted, like shaking hands. But now the email message was gone. Tommy Trevenin and the rest of the class were looking at Kellogg to dismiss them for recess, and his day was marching on. Time existed like this for humans. Kellogg was due in the faculty room for coffee and complaining in seven minutes. This was an appointment he could not miss. That night, Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko got properly drunk in a celebratory manner and had more sexual intercourse. They were, quote, on a roll, so to speak. After they were drunk, but before sex, they read out loud to one another from the books of Bainbridge McGee and his father, Kilgore Trout. McGee's work was familiar to Emily Plinko, but she had yet to read Kilgore Trout. Kellogg was eager to turn her on to such classic novels as How You Doin', The Big Board, Oh Say Can You Smell, and of course his favorite, Barring Gaffner of Bagnalto, or This Year's Masterpiece, as well as the stories Gilgongo and Bunker Bingo Party. He would later get her interested in Trout's memoir, My Ten Years on Automatic Pilot, but by that time she wanted to read everything Trout. She became a purebred Kilgore Trout devotee, you understand, just like Elliot Rosewater. But that came much later. When Kellogg was telling Emily Plinko about his favorite books by Trout, he came to a realization about McGee's use of the word masterpiece. A small-sized epiphany about this came to him as he said the title aloud, Barring Gaffner of Bagnialto or this year's masterpiece. Do you think, he asked her, that McGee got the crazy idea from his father that he should try to write a masterpiece this year? What the fuck? She answered. She was very properly drunk. It was lucky for her that Eat24.com had completely gone bankrupt three days ago, making her eligible for California unemployment. She was going, quote, on the dole, as she liked to call it, and had spent most of the day asleep reading and very happy. The very next day, which was a Saturday, she could lie in bed just as long as she liked also. Lying in bed was a great way to cure the sickness that came from getting very drunk, which was called a hangover. In case you were wondering, Bainbridge McGee's favorite Kilgore Trout novel was The Big Board, which showed that Trafalmadorians had a predilection and intense interest in his favorite sport, which was golf. By a remarkable feat of reading ability, Emily Plinko had no problem at all reading while she was quite drunk. She just couldn't speak all that well. She had no problem reading aloud either. So Artemis Kellogg handed her the book, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, which he just happened to have on hand, and turned to the page with an excerpt written by Trout. The pages were taken from Trout's novel Venus on the Half Shell and introduced into the narrative by the author of God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, Kurt Vonnegut. He actually did this just to make his book thicker. He believed thicker books would sell more copies. Back in 1965, this was true. Honestly, it was still true now, too. People wrote a lot of bad reviews on Amazon.com for books they believed to be too short. They wanted to be sure they were getting their $4.99 worth or less. So that book had better have length to it. It better have girth. 
Heft was off the table. On account of any number of books could be loaded into your Kindle Paperwhite or Fire, and it wouldn't change the weight of the device one iota. And so on. Emily Plinko began to read the excerpt by Trout aloud in a beautiful voice. She stood up onto the couch as she read it. She held the book in one hand and threw her other hand up toward the sky. I cannot tell you the words that she read from this novel on account of the fact that they're now held hostage by the estate of Philip Jose Farmer. They cannot be reprinted here in any part, parcel, or piece. Those words are dead to us. So it goes. Emily Plinko sounded very lovely as she read the words aloud. When she finished, she fell sideways onto Artemis Kellogg, who had been expecting just such a happening and caught her quite gracefully. He carried her off to bed where they promptly and drunkenly made love. Yes, they really did love each other now. It kind of warms your heart, doesn't it? I mean, my heart isn't warm, but your heart might be warmed by this kind of material, this kind of existence, this kind of reality, right? Let's pretend your heart is warm. Have you tried saying the name Beatrice Keedsler several times? I invite you to practice. It is really quite fun. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself and your listening. And if you're interested in reading something new, get thee to groundfiction.com. You will love it. There you'll find lots of great stories to read, great new authors, and a link to buy the ebook or the print version on Amazon. Like I said before, I'd be happy to hook you up with that free if you want. Hey, another question. How are you doing during COVID 2020, the battle of the three pandemics? Is there anything I can do to help? If I can, I would love to help you out because I really like you. If you've gotten to episode 12 of this thing, man, you're like one of my top friends, one of my best friends. And I mean friend in a real way, not like a Facebook way. No like button business here. But anyway, that's what I've got for you today. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll be back with you soon. Don't hold your breath, but yeah, soon, you know. Next week is Yom Kippur. So atone. <laughs>